This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings. Welcome to another episode of the ATS Reading List podcast brought to you by the American Thoracic Society section on medical education and trainees interested in medical education. I'm PJ Gary, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Duke. Hi, guys. In this episode, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Bob Kempinen to discuss something we all know and love, the ATS reading list. We'll walk through the history of the reading list from how the project started to how it continues to grow and change and what we can look forward to next. Dr. Kempinen is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care at Hennepin County Medical Center the University of Minnesota, where he serves as a medical educator, researcher, and clinician. He has an avid interest in bronchiectasis and a scholarly interest in medical education, where he has taught and developed curricula, including the ATS reading list. He is a retired two-time Olympic long-distance runner for the United States and participated in the 1992 Barcelona Games and the 1996 Atlanta Games. I definitely spent some time on your Wikipedia page. So full disclosure there. We're excited to chat with him. So let's get into it. Dr. Kempinen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, more than happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to start out a bit by asking how the idea of the ATS reading list actually started. Um, well, actually, it, it got going when I was a fellow at the University of Washington. So this would have been, you know, late 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, there wasn't really um, probably every program that just didn't really have a lot of programs didn't have a, a syllabus that you could turn to and it'd be like a discussion on rounds and the attending would be trying to remember, oh, there's that study from roughly some year and you think it's in this journal and then you would go try to find it and it'd be hard to. And so the idea of having a list of articles that come up a lot on rounds was sort of the, the gestalt of it. And so one of the fellows in my class, Terry Lee, who is now Terry Huff, who is the Oregon Health Sciences now as the division director. So the two of us got kind of excited about the idea, but also, you know, didn't have a lot of historical perspective as we were second or third year fellows. And so uh, we ended up basically hosting a group of faculty and we basically convinced enough people to come for dinner. We made dinner for them. We provided plenty of beverages for them and we just sat around and picked their brains and we kind of just had a big list of common topics you're going to run into in pulmonary and critical care and like, hey, you know, this, you know, what do you think about this topic? Anything that you think should be belong on there? And so it, it got it started, and as you can imagine, it had a, a Seattle bias to it. So uh, the first iteration was, you know, uh, maybe not completely objective, but then we would go back, of course, and then also, you know, sort of, you know, think about um, on our own, like sort of try to systematically come up with articles that we knew about that, you know, should, that would come up a lot on rounds. That was sort of the, the idea behind it. And then when I came, you know, back to, I grew up in Minnesota, I came back here, Initially at the University of Minnesota, we just kept that whole process going and it got to be more and more formal. And then it's kind of lucky for me in some ways, it's good timing because the ATS website was sort of in its infancy. And, you know, there was like a lot of demand for like, hey, anyone have anything you want to put on the website? <laughs> and so 
early on it, it got on there and um and it's just been something that's been maintained in some degree refined over the years you know as you, you can imagine that is far beyond the origin story that i actually had in mind so that's really cool and i hope and pray for the days that the pandemic eases and we can sit down and eat drink and be merry with our faculty colleagues again can yeah. you can you tell us a little bit more about how the ATS reading list has changed since its initial creation? The whole process has gotten more organized and formal and more predictable from year to year. And, and one of the big advantages too is like each, almost every year I work with one of the fellows in pulmonary critical care at the University of Minnesota. And it's been super helpful because they just will take a fresh look at it. And, you know, so even it could be something as simple as like, well, why don't we put the title of the article in bold? Because it's just a lot easier for me to see what I'm looking for if you're kind of scrolling through and let's put a PubMed link in there and, you know, just little things like that. You know, what topics have we not covered that, you know, should be or, and so there's been a lot of tweaking that way. The other, I think, key thing that's helped a lot is uh, now that it's for, I don't know how many, 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 many years, the ATS training committee receives a, a draft of our update and and they will divide it up. It's too much for one person to look at, but they divide it up within the committee members and have people look at it and, and try to, you know, like, well, what did we miss? You know, what could, what, what should we potentially add? What's like maybe an article that really doesn't seem to have much relevance anymore, get rid of. And so we get a lot of super useful feedback and some of it might be just a really important randomized clinical trial that for whatever we reason, we just dropped the ball and missed it that year. But every once in a while, it might be just like gem of like, there's one I can think of off the top of my head that you know, the sort of controversies and PFT interpretation, you know, like the limitations of it, right? There's just not perfect test and not so much how to interpret it, but, you know, just giving you a context from some, I won't say obscure allergy journal, because but I never heard of it, and, you know, but I would never have known about this, but somebody from the training committee pointed it out and you're like, oh, that perfectly hits what we're trying to achieve. And so I think it's uh, that editing or feedback or peer review process has added another um, level of quality to it over the years. Wow. I love how the original idea started during your fellowship and then you continue to use fellows. It's certainly inspiring as a fellow myself. Kind of going on that same vein, I think a lot of trainees who look at the reading list and use the reading list can be overwhelmed by the number of articles. As you think through that process each year of updating it, you must be reading articles constantly throughout the year. Can you walk us through that process a little bit more granularly of what you look for in potential publications and articles, and ultimately that final choice that you were alluding to earlier with the different players involved? Sure. Basic litmus test is, is this an article that is affecting clinical practice? And, and so it could be like a really important article that's more about epidemiology, but you know, for like when you're at the bedside, you know, that probably doesn't play in as directly. And so that might not be in there. So it's, we're also trying to target, there's all these great review articles and, and there's up to date. And we're trying to also, if it's information that affects practice, but it's not readily available in one of these commonly used resources. There's so much out there, you know, so it's trying to hit that sweet spot. And it's not one thing that sometimes people might misinterpret. It's not really an endorsement of a way somebody should practice. So it's more like what's topical too, to some extent. So I can remember early on when the ARMA study came out, 
you know, six mils versus 12 mils per kick, ideal body weight for ARDS. There was a, in the Blue Journal, when Martin Tobin was the editor, there was a letter that went in that from a couple um, pulmonary critical care folks, it might've been at the NIH, but they were like kind of questioning, well, why did you pick 12 as opposed to 10 or eight? And it was, a, I thought, a really good discussion of something that was fairly controversial at the time. And so it wasn't like by including it, it was like trying to undermine ARMA study, but it was more like, well, get people thinking critically. Just even thinking about the recent trial where, you know, vitamin C and thiamine and hydrocortisone for septic shock, if the, the initial study that prompted all these randomized controlled trials wasn't super robust methodology, I, it wasn't like an endorsement to do that. It was more like, okay, well, if you think an article is a piece of evidence, isn't that great? You should at least know what that is and look at it yourself. So you're not just, it's like, you're blinded to like, well, why are they doing all the trials in the first place? You know? So it's sort of a, a bit of what's what's driving practice. As things get more and more established, we have a tendency, like there's so many new drugs for pulmonary arterial hypertension, and there's all these new asthma biologics, which are great, and we're publishing individual studies initially, but if they become more and more ingrained into practice, or a lot of the CF studies that, you know, they might get rolled into like a, a guideline instead of just including so many articles, because it is a real challenge. You don't we don't want to make it this giant document where it becomes really unwieldy to actually kind of skim through and try to hit the most high yield articles. And so it's, it's a, it's a difficult balance and it's, and I'll say up front, it's, we try to be objective in terms of like systematically going through the literature and what other people think is important, but it's also ultimately there's going to be some subjectiveness to this. And, you know, we don't always probably hit it right for everyone which is completely understandable as the literature grows. I mean, you have to find a way to, to choose what's relevant. And I like the idea of keeping things topical. It's, it's interesting because as I look at it, it certainly comes off as topical over the last five years that I've been looking at it. But I imagine that if this, if this began back in the nineties, as you said, have, have you had to go through and trim articles at certain times as, as additional data comes out and the literature changes and grows? Oh, definitely. Every year we, we're taking out articles. To be honest, we don't set any rigid target, but roughly we try to eliminate as many articles as we add. Because some of it's just like, yeah, if it can get consolidated into a guideline, you know, knowing the original data on Toby Nebs for CF, like, is that, you know, stepping back, is that like something that's sort of baked into practice or, you know, at this point it's not very novel or or maybe, you know, as time goes on, it might not even become as clinically relative if people with CF with the newer drugs do super well, and maybe hardly any of them are on it anymore, you know, like something like Pulmazyme or, you know, so it is trying to trim it down. And then as, as, as the literature or our practice evolves, negative studies about prednisone and IPF probably aren't that important anymore, but they did have relevance, you know, back in the day. I didn't realize that you guys took out as many articles as you added. I think that's a very fascinating point. I definitely have benefited as a trainee, like I mentioned, from this resource, and we're very excited to use it as the framework for this podcast. I was wondering what you think we should keep in mind as we explore the literature together with our listeners. Boy, that's a, a good question. Part When I think about the reading list, again, it's, it is driven by topical and when you're at the bedside, what are you likely to be talking about on rounds as a, as a, in a teaching hospital? But uh, 
you know, it's, it's not really meant to be like a substitute for board review. You know, it, it's a different thing than, and it's, and it's always, you know, if there's, there's important topics that really like we can't go into everything, you know, so there's, there's going to be just realize there's like, this is not comprehensive. We just at some point, like we're not going to have a lot of articles on various forms of pulmonary vasculitis. It's just, I think most people, if it's a rare enough entity, if one of those rolls into my ICU, I'm probably not going to use the reading list to figure out what to do. <laughs> I'm going to be like doing a lit search now uh, and getting, you know, maybe I'm going to be consulting others. And so, you know, so there is just knowing um, it's not board review, it's not comprehensive, but it's more that targeted shaping how we're, how practice is evolving, I guess, is our, our goal. Dr. Kampanen, I am interested in your experience with this podcast throughout so many years. How has that impacted how you teach in the ICU, how you teach at the bedside? Pretty intuitive. Like a, there's this sort of way of looking at it, like it's evidence-based teaching. Like, well, what's the data supporting what we're doing at, um, if we're going to intervene on a patient? And sometimes it's really nice to just be have it just because I work on the list and pay attention to it, have that more in the front of my brain. But I think the other thing that you might not think of it quite as readily is having watched, you know, research over the years, you also have an appreciation that what the latest study shows now maybe not pan out with subsequent studies, or it might've been partway on the right track, or it might've been like, oh, this is a game changing moment. And so having that historical perspective when you bring it to the learners on rounds, I think can kind of help them try to at least appreciate that it's lifelong learning. And also that, you know, just being cognizant of, well, you know, always be questioning like how aggressively you want to apply the medical literature to the person in front of you, knowing that it's always going to be more like direction as, uh, or clues as to the right thing to do, but not necessarily like a cookbook thing where if this study shows this, then do that. And so I try to have uh, both that sort of, well, yeah, this is the evidence behind it, but then also just realize the evidence isn't set in stone. Anything that we should keep in mind when yeah. we start doing with the podcast? The only other thing I'd add to is, again, if it's on the reading list, it's it's not necessarily an endorsement of like, that's how you should practice. It's just what's, what's the newest. And this might be just partly how I practice, but isn't so much like if some new trial comes along that shows a benefit that... It, that means that, oh, we should all be doing that. Do we all need to paralyze somebody for the first 48 hours if they come in with ARDS? You know, there's, you know, there's going to be other trials to try to potentially confirm those studies and they don't always get confirmed. And so it's, it's also not meant to, yeah, again, like sort of try to tell you what to do. It's more like, well, should we paralyze or not? What's the data? And you can try to find like some of the seminal articles that can help answer that and then decide as you're taking care of a patient that's right in front of you, how you might want to apply or not apply some of that. So really great perspective. I think I know Jen and I have thought long and hard about how to keep your vision of the ATS reading list alive as we start the podcast and sort of walking through. So how you outlined that I think gives us some really nice perspective to to help utilize the ATS reading list as a, a jumping point for people's reading rather than just, let's say, a go-to for guidelines if someone comes in with one particular disease process. I really think that the struggle for us 
initially was to figure out how much to add to some of the articles and to sort of bring that branch point and spread for each of our episodes to open up more reading. And I like the way that you outlined that for us to try and help us figure out how to how to build that in and, and sort of give people more reading from the reading list as a jumping point. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, it might really amplify the utility of it. Starts with the reading list and that article or two articles sort of um, creates a framework for other questions or help people recognize like, oh, I'm not sure I understand totally the context of why these articles are in, you know, might help people identify where they might have some knowledge gaps or also where to go to get even more information that, you know, might become more and more specific to, you know, their own practice. Thank you so much for your efforts on the reading list. Normally, we've been asking our guests to give these articles that we talk about a impact factor um, on how they basically change their clinical practice. Since this episode focus is a bit different, I was wondering what your advice would be to trainees or young faculty who are trying to improve their understanding of the medical literature. Um, well, I think... Uh... You know, it is, a, there is a overwhelming amount that gets published. And, and this is like one way at least to, to get a starting point. And again, it, I think recognizing that what's on the list now will be different the next year. It'll be different the next year after that. And looking at it as um, a starting point for thinking about where you're, where you might have knowledge gaps, where there's still a lot of uncertainty. You know, you have like articles with, you know, there's more articles under a given topic could be indirect a disagreement with one another and and I think over time that something that people boy I'm not sure I'm going with this <laughs> let's hit the stop uh Jen can you kind of I don't know if I'm getting at that question very well let there, me re, let me rephrase it yeah, there's also another question you want me to kind of I, I might be rambling I was thinking as we're talking I'm thinking um and maybe maybe this doesn't have a unique answer but my an additional question I was thinking about was how does this change? How does how is your participation in the ATS reading list changed how you teach in the ICU, how you teach at the bedside? Is that question have a unique answer from um, what we've talked about before? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how unique it is. I think just by virtue of being familiar with it, it's probably easier for me to remember like something relevant on teaching, you know, like, like we're just, are we going to paralyze somebody that already yes or not, or are we going to prone them or not? Or, you know, like the familiarity allows me to refer back to the literature more readily because it's there, but also I'm not somebody who has this incredible memory. I can often just get to the point in my head, like, oh yeah, there's something about that. In the reading list. And then in my spare time, I'll go to the website and look and, oh yeah, that's what I was thinking about. So it kind of like, it, I think it can enrich teaching rounds by being able to talk about specific articles and, and sometimes just even knowing what articles have were on the list that change, like just the whole idea of trying to teach critical thinking and realizing that the, that the standard of care is gonna keep evolving and it's not like a, so much like a cookbook thing where, okay, this study, so this, and that's what I'm going to be doing from now on, you know, just that sort of having that historical perspective more and like everyone, I think who's been practicing a long time knows this, but maybe a little easier for me because I can think of more specific examples of 
where some research holds up over time, some part way right and moves it the right direction, and some are sort of breakthrough things. But I don't know if that really is very unique, and it's kind of kind of long-winded. It is unique, and it's it. I think emphasizes, at least to me, it emphasizes the the ability of the reading list, despite beginning way back when the ATS website began it still serves as a place to go, a reliable place to go before, during, or after rounds to find relevant literature at, at a glance and and sorted appropriately and accessible. So I think I think unique, impactful, I, I all wonderful things I have to say about the reading list. And I, I think, I don't want you to undersell it, Dr. Kempen, and I think you yeah. put a lot of work into it and, and it's a great resource. Well, I really like the idea of it as a website is matured being housed within that and and over time if people are going to the website for the reading list and there's an article you know there's a there's, we have a couple there's articles about ECMO but now you know there's on the website you can get to videos that teach uh, the basics of ECMO in, in a more visual way and so it can be a nice way to have the whole website build up different aspects with each other and, and people get that much more out of just thinking about going to the ATS website as a, as a resource from the get-go. Now we can put our shameless plug for its associated podcast. <laughs> do, you, do you have any particular advice, general advice for people in medicine, Dr. Kempinen? Oh boy. You know, I guess, uh, I said, well, first I'd say not so, I won't even start off with advice. I would just shout out some praise or gratitude. I just think the way the pulmonary critical care community, but you know, obviously the hospitals and emergency department, this way everyone as a whole has rallied in the United States and internationally in dealing with COVID is, I don't know. I just think it's been incredibly impressive as a, this community to have weather what we have, and I'm sure we'll weather if there's something more coming down the line, but you sort of think about the magnitude of the sacrifices people have been making to do their best in sometimes really unbelievably hard circumstances. It's just, I don't know why, I just felt like I had to compelled to kind of, if you give me a mic, that's the first thing I would say. But then maybe it, it segues into like advice. And I think that, you know, if you're, it's found uh, in our field for people to feel ground down potentially uh, at times just you deal with some sad things and there's some frustrating things and you're often working long hours but if you can you know recognize the good that you bring to people and families and you know in, not not you're like always like you're the great save but sometimes it's like it might be the best thing is somebody ends up comfort care and has a good good a death as you could hope for so just a whole spectrum of ways we bring a lot and try to not lose sight of that and as much as you can, if you can find um, a practice or a group that is sort of the open door by where you can plop down in a chair and shoot the ball with somebody and joke around or just commiserate about how hard it is or what's challenging, you can have that, you know, uh, it's it's great. And I think that's been super valuable for me. And, and I think, you know, fostering, trying to foster those relationships. And then obviously there's, everyone's probably gotten unbelievable amounts of advice on wellness. Yeah, trying to find ways to, not mentally or physically be at the hospital <laughs> is a good thing. And that there's so many different ways to do that, but giving yourself a chance to do that and, 
and being forgiving of yourself. If you make a mistake, I unbelievable. One of some of my senior partners are the smartest people I know on the earth. And they all like have made mistakes and they all stay humble, but they don't curl up in a ball and give up, you know? So I think it's that ability to keep at it, forgive yourself. And, but at the same time, don't get cocky. Yeah. It's, those are my sort of rambling set of pieces of advice, solicited advice though. Thank you, Dr. Kempinen, for joining us for this episode. Oh, uh, my pleasure. I'm more than happy to, to do it. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the APS Reading List podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society section on medical education. If you enjoyed this content, please like, rate, review, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.